the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Mosby's raiders disappear into the night. Cobra warriors scramble to oppose an empire. Generals and ghosts. Post-apocalypse landscapes and extremely PO'd teenage girls with high-powered weaponry and zombies to slay. Plus, part 15 of our complete audiobook serialization, Larry Korea's Hard Magic. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. This time we have an interview with Steve White, creator of the Jason Thano time travel series, as well as many other books for Bain. Steve discusses his new Jason Thano novel, Ghosts of Time. If you've been waiting for the Jason Thano American Civil War book, this is it. The story takes place in the latter days of the Civil War, with Jason and his operatives arriving shortly before the fall of Richmond. And during the time of Mosby's Confederacy in the mountain region in the West, now Steve is from Virginia and lives in the midst of the history and landscape there. So this one is as authentic as can be. We'll talk more with Steve about it. Plus, we continue our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic as read by Bronson Pinchot. But first, here's the news. Hooray, the July Bain mass markets are out. This month's offerings include Under a Graveyard Sky, the first book in John Ringo's science-based zombie series, Black Tide Rising. If you've been waiting to dive into this great Ringo series, this is the place. We meet Sophia and her sister Faith, teenage girls who are thrust with their father and mother into a life of permanent survival mode, as my kids call it on Minecraft. Fortunately, the Smiths are a family who have prepared for a worst-case scenario, and they are one of only a tiny handful who have a chance of surviving. Also out is Cobra Slave, the first book in the new Cobra Rebellion series from best-selling author Timothy Zahn. The Empire of Man is determined to find and either beg, borrow, or steal military technology from a hidden world that will give them an edge over the alien troft, since a new war seems to be brewing the only ones who may know how to get to this hidden world, the Cobra family of Broom. Cobras are enhanced warriors, technologically enhanced, but the Empire forces are just as advanced in their mech suits, and there are lots more of them. Now the Brooms have to find a way to avoid being captured and mind-drained by the Empire and to fight back. It's a good series with plenty of action and drama, and the second book in the series, Cobra Outlaw, is also out in hardcover. Also out in July is Omnitrade paperback, Hope Renewed. This one contains two novels in the general series created by David Drake. They are The Sword and the Chosen, books five and six in the general series. The general books can be read as standalone novels, or you can read your way through the series. They are set in a post-apocalyptic far future where a human star empire has fallen, leaving its far-flung worlds isolated and reverted to old technology, and they even forget their past in some instances. A surviving artificial intelligence is committed to uniting the planets and uplifting civilization once again, and recruits and trains planetary generals and heroes to do so, and is ruthless in going about it. If you want the latest entries in this series, you can check out The Heretic and the Savior, written by David Drake and me, Tony Daniel. The Heretic is available in all formats, hardcover, mass market, and ebook, and The Savior will be out in hardcover in September, and is currently available as an advanced ebook reading galley. Under a Graveyard Sky, Cobra Slave, and Hope Renewed are all now available at booksellers everywhere. I want to welcome Steve White back to the podcast. Hello, Steve. Hello, Tony. Steve White is the author of 19 novels with Bain Books. He's the author with David Weber and later Shirley Myers and Charles E. Gannon of the Starfire series of novels. These include Insurrection, Crusade in Death Ground, and The Shiva Option, which was a New York Times bestseller, as well as Exodus and Extremis. 
Steve's other Bane series include the Prince of Sunset series, the Disinherited series, the Star series, which include Eagle Against the Stars and Wolf Among the Stars. There are standalone science fiction novels such as Demon's Gate, The Prometheus Project, and St. Anthony's Fire, really entertaining story, which is kind of alternate history, where nasty aliens help the Spanish win against the British and Queen Elizabeth when the Armada shows up. Steve is also the creator of the Jason Thanu time travel novels, which include Blood of the Heroes, Sunset of the Gods, Pirates of the Time Stream, and latest entry, Ghosts of Time. Steve, uh, Jason Thano has bounced around through time quite a lot now. We're on, we're on book four. Uh, he's got serious worries about encountering himself in the past now. In this universe, uh, paradoxes tend to write themselves in an implacable sort of way. Can you explain the observer effect? Why can't Jason go back in time and shoot Hitler, say, or, or save Lincoln? Or shoot Lincoln? <laughs> Well, the reason Jason can't go back and shoot Hitler or save Lincoln is because the history that has eventuated in Jason's own world states very clearly that Hitler wasn't shot and Lincoln was. They have a saying, reality protects itself. <clears throat> the past can be changed. In fact, any time Jason and company do anything in the past, it's actually going to change the past, but observed history can't. If you go back and try to shoot Hitler, the gun will jam. Or maybe while you're drawing, drawing a bead on Hitler, uh, an automobile will run you over. And uh, this last is uh, the reason why Jason and company are careful not to try to do this sort of thing. Because, as I say, reality protects itself, and it doesn't give a damn how it protects itself. <clears throat> and incidentally, um, I don't want to give anything away, but at the very end of Ghosts of Time... There's one 19th century character who, for various reasons, Jason has told a lot more about what is going to happen than he should. But one thing he does not tell his character is that Lincoln is going to be assassinated in 10 days after Jason goes back to his own time, because he knows that this character, who is black, won't be able to help himself. He will be compelled to go to Washington and try to stop the assassination of Lincoln, and the observer effect might kill him to prevent it. And Jason's last thought about this man is, please don't think too badly of me ten days from now. <laughs> well, you know, that opens up the possibility, I don't know, uh, that you could actually commit a murder uh, using the observer effect. <laughs> well, oh, oh I, see, I see what you mean. Put somebody in the way. But, but you see, as I say, the past can be changed as long as observed history isn't. If, in fact, the person you're trying to murder did not get murdered, and it is, it is a historical fact that he did not get murdered, then it won't work. But you could throw some any unknown changes into that, yeah. in, in Any changes that time travelers bring about in the past has always been part of the past, if you follow me. Yeah. Well, explain how they leave messages. This is also an interesting uh, corollary, um, how they time travelers can communicate with their own future. There's only one way they can do that, so-called message drop system. And this is a perfect example of what I was just saying about how the past can be changed, but observed history can't. The way the message drop system works is this. They pick a nice, out-of-the-way history-less location, some cave somewhere or something. And <clears throat> time travelers, if they want to send a message to their own time, they write it on some nice, durable medium that isn't going to turn to dust in the, over the centuries, and they leave it at this location. And uptime in Jason's period, the temporal regulatory authority is periodically checking this location. They might check it one day and there's no message there. So then they go away, and a couple of days later they come back, check it again, there's a message there. Well, the, so, uh, so they've changed the past, but they haven't changed history. Yeah, so you better make sure that you pick out a spot that is not going to be disturbed and get written about or, or mentioned in somebody's diary or something. This is what makes the system of 
extremely limited usefulness. For example, in Pirates of the Time Stream, they had a message drop set up in a mountain overlooking Kingston Harbor in Jamaica. But as uh, it turned out, Jason and his team spent most of their time either at sea with Henry Morgan or shipwrecked on Hispaniola or uh, campaigning against the Spaniards in South America or something. So they weren't really in a position to use this message drop. And this uh, more often than not is the case. As I say, it's a very limited method, but it's the only method they've got for communicating across time. Well, you come up with a, a very interesting twist on this. Uh, I, I don't want to give a spoiler to the book, how it works, but um, it, the passing down of information within the time stream, not necessarily to the future, is also possible using uh, such, a, such a method, depending on who you pass it down through. Right, and uh, another technique, of course, is to make several trips into the past. Uh, well, I don't want to get into this yet because it involves the transhumanists, <laughs> but over a long period of time, you can arrange for appearances with accurate prophecies of the future. So tell us about the transhumanists. Um, Jason and his special task force, that, that's basically what they do is they combat these guys. They're up to no good. Um, what, are, what are they trying to accomplish? Okay, the, in my future history that I worked out for this series, toward the end of the 21st century, the transhumanist movement arrives, uh, arises. The, what, where they're coming from is that in the course of the 21st century, the human race has acquired the ability through biotech and nanotech and bionics and direct neural interfacing and so forth, to pretty much morph itself into something that is no longer recognizably human. And uh, most people <clears throat> recoil from this, but the transhumanist's uh, position is, great, we should embrace this and use it with total ruthlessness to uh, transform the human race into a ruling caste of genetically enhanced supermen ruling over specialized subspecies that are specialized for specific purposes and uh, conditioned for obedience, in short, gods and monsters. Now, these people succeed in taking over Earth around the year 2130 and proceed to wreak vast misery for three generations. In the meantime, however, some people who have seen the transhumanist takeover coming, have escaped it by means of slower-than-light colonization of nearby star systems. Around the year 2230, one of these colonies discovers FTL, and they and the, these exiles return to Earth and spark a rebellion against the transhuman dispensation, as it's called, which lasts about 40 years. And by the year 2270, the transhumanists and all their gene-warped monstrosities are believed to have been exterminated. However, in reality, in the course of this 40-year series of wars, the transhumanist leadership has seen it coming and have spent their time secretly laying the groundwork for an extremely extensive, extremely well-equipped underground. And in Jason's time, this secret underground is still in... <clears throat> in business, and they're using time travel to try to subvert the past. They know they can't change history, but there are plenty of blank spaces in the past, and they can plant all sorts of little time bombs, secret societies, secret cults, nanotech caches, time-delayed uh, biological packages, and so forth, all of which are going to come to fruition on the same day, sometime in the near future of Jason's period. He's sort of fighting a war that is that hasn't arrived yet. Yes, the whole idea is that on the day, as they, the transhumanists call it, it will turn out that known history is going to turn out to have just been a kind of window dressing behind which the real secret history has been gradually building up to an inevitable transhumanist triumph. And Jason, and Jason is fighting... To permit that, his organization is they're going back and tracking down these various time bombs. Jason is not from Earth originally. He's from the planet Hesperia, I believe, where he receives some military training. One he's, of the extras, he's from one of the extrasolar colonies. Wasn't he a ranger of some sort of a special forces guy there before? 
or partisan? Yes, he was. Yes, he was. Uh, yeah, yes, he was part of the Hesperian Colonial Rangers this planet. You see, it's uh, it's not quite fifty light years from Earth, which is the outermost frontier of human expansion in his period, and it's sort of a wild and lawless frontier. And he was part of the Colonial Rangers there, and eventually he got recruited by the Temporal Service, which is the enforcement arm of the Temporal Regulatory Authority, because of his uh, special abilities and because, uh, for various reasons, the, there are certain periods of history that he can easily blend in. This has become a problem, you see, because the human race has become more and more cosmopolitan, and they uh, need people who... <clears throat> can pass unnoticed in the less cosmopolitan world of the past. And Jason, for example, he's only 5'11", which is well below average height for his own era, but at least he's not freakishly tall in most historical eras. And he he looks very Mediterranean, so he can pass for a member of any of the Mediterranean nationalities in any period of history. And to fit in... During Civil War times, can you explain how uh, how he uh, explains himself or and and the others? He belongs to an actual uh, unit, an actual regiment from Louisiana, which was serving with Lee's Army of Northern Virginia at this, this period of time. I uh, researched this pretty extensively, and all the military units I name in this uh, actually. Existed. They were actually commanded by who I say commanded them, and they were actually serving in the areas. I said, but this uh, among these uh, Virginians and North Carolinians that make up most of the Army of Northern Virginia, he can easily pass as a French Creole from Louisiana. And also, uh, this helps explain any slight oddities in his speech. Everybody knows that uh, people from uh, Louisiana Delta do not talk exactly like Virginians. Now they're sent back to the end of the end period of the Civil War, the uh, December 1864. They're sent back for a set duration of time to April 1865, and they're sent back to Northern Virginia. Yeah, first, first they have to go to Richmond to establish a certain contact that they know of. I'll get to that in a minute, and then they go to Northern Virginia. So what was the what was the general situation of where are we in the civil war at this point? Now, well, the the conventional wisdom tells us that there was no way the south could possibly have won the war. It was hopeless from the beginning. Not true. If McClellan had defeated Lincoln in the election of 1864 and carried through on his campaign promise to negotiate a peace settlement on the basis of Southern independence, then the South would have won the war politically after having already effectively lost it militarily, which is exactly what North Vietnam did, so we shouldn't find it strange. However, by the time of the story, which then Jason arrives in December 1864, Lincoln has been safely reelected, and the situation of the South is essentially hopeless. Grant's army has worked its way around Lee's right flank and is besieging Petersburg, which if they take it will cut Richmond off from what's left of the rest of the Confederacy. And what's developed around Petersburg is sort of a dress rehearsal for the trench warfare of World War One. And so, in short, it's developed into a war of attrition, which is a war the South cannot win. And things are bad in Richmond, worse than they have been up till till this point. Jason needs to go there to make contact with a real historical person. I don't think it's giving anything away to to tell us a little bit about uh, Elizabeth <clears throat> Van Loo's. Elizabeth Van Loo was an interesting individual. She was uh, an extremely wealthy heiress who was outspokenly opposed to slavery, although she denied being an abolitionist because she was also opposed to violence and also outspokenly opposed to secession. Uh, this, of course, made her something of a social pariah among the wealthy Richmond set in which she moved. During the war, she became of an extremely effective spy network in Richmond. And the interesting thing is this. She made no attempt to conceal her anti-slavery, pro-union opinions, which everybody knew anyway. In fact, she became even more outspoken 
about them and went around acting like she was slightly off her rocker. In fact, people called her Crazy Bet. So you see, it was a perfect example of hiding in plain sight. Mm-hmm. Nobody took this dotty old spinster seriously, but she had a pretty amazing spy network that included clerks in the Confederate government and included officers at Libby Prison and uh, her mansion, and it was quite an impressive mansion she had in Richmond, uh, became a safe house for escapees from Libby Prison. Incidentally, Libby Prison, which was in downtown Richmond, which is why it was practical for these escapees to get to her mansion, this was for captured Union officers. The, uh, <clears throat> the captured Union enlisted men lived in a tent city on the island of Belle Isle in the James River at Richmond, right on the falls of the James. The, the idea being that nobody could swim away from the island because of the rapids there, although there are cases of Union prisoners diving into the rapids anyway because drowning was preferable to conditions on Belle Isle. I should mention that POW conditions in the Civil War were horrible on both sides, and this was not because of deliberate villainy, but rather because nobody on either side had ever dreamed that they were going to get swamped the tens of thousands of prisoners. Nobody in America had any experience with this. There was no organization for it. And in the South, at least, by the time of this story, everybody was going hungry, so they couldn't defend their prisoners adequately if they'd wanted to. Now, when Jason is staying with uh, Lizzie Van Loos, uh, he overhears a conversation. I, I love this conversation. It, it doesn't really uh, – it's not a spoiler for the book, but he he, um, he hears Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee talking about the arming of the slaves to fight for the Confederacy. And I've always thought of that as an odd chapter in Southern history in that – Preserving the, the way of slavery is a, is a major point in the whole point of secession. That conversation is fictional, but all of the opinions that I put into the mouths of Lee and Davis are a matter of record. Now, sure. Lee, it's interesting. It's very hard for us today to appreciate his position because it's a position that doesn't exist today. Essentially, his primary loyalty was to his state. Now, Lee was flatly opposed to secession. In fact, before Virginia seceded, he argued against it strongly. As for slavery, he unequivocally stated that it was a moral, social, and political evil, was the way he put it. But he believed that at the, at the, at the what was then the present evolution of society, it was probably a necessary evil. But the point is, even though he was opposed to secession, after Virginia went ahead and voted for secession anyway, as far as he was concerned, that ended it. He turned down Lincoln's offer to command the United States Army and felt, just felt he had to go with his native state. It's, uh, I think it's, uh, it was a tragic situation, but uh, this particular notion of loyalty was extremely widespread in the United States then. Uh, not only among Southerners, but also among Northerners. But Northerners, you see, were never put to the test because their states never tried to secede. Now, eventually, and by the time of this story, Lee had come around to the notion that slavery had to go. It was become a necessity. They, uh, the South was out of manpower, out of white manpower anyway. They desperately needed reinforcements. He suggested that they offer slaves their freedom in exchange for joining the Confederate Army. And uh, his position was uh, reached, uh, reached a pass where the, the Confederacy had to choose between keeping its independence or keeping its slaves. They could no longer keep both because once the, once the blacks became soldiers, they could no longer be slaves. Mm-hmm. So Lee's, uh, I guess that you could say that um, Lee's reasons that didn't originally involve slavery and still didn't at the end of the war it's, it was the the forcing of uh of virginia to to the will of the federal government that really bothered him yes sir, yes sir, yes but for him it wasn't about slavery 
to the west of Richmond and Washington, D.C. are the Blue Ridge Mountains and the Appalachians. Um, now, there's another set of foothills in there, I believe, as well. Is this? Tell me where Mosby's Confederacy was physically located. Why is it called that, and also who's Mosby? Mosby's Confederacy uh, roughly consisted of the counties of Loudoun and Fauquier in northern Virginia. It was a... <clears throat> And the reason it was called that was because of John Singleton Mosby. Very interesting bird. He, he was born and grew up right around my hometown of Charlottesville, Virginia, where at one time he was expelled from the University of Virginia for shooting a fellow student. His defense was that the guy he had shot was a notorious bully. And uh, this uh, pretty much set the tone for Mosby's life. He, uh, he was the classic case of a contrarian, or as they called it in those days, and again, he was simply compelled. He couldn't avoid a fight. He uh, show him a fight. He had to plunge into it on the side of the underdog. Now, his politics were exactly the same as Lee's. He was, he was flatly opposed to secession. He, 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 if anything, he was even less favorable towards slavery than Lee. He, uh, he did not like slavery. He did not like secession, but Virginia seceded. He had to go with Virginia. Now, the reason that area was called Mosby's Confederacy was this. Uh, Mosby, you must understand, had absolutely no military training or experience. He joined the Confederate Army as a private. He rapidly rose because he turned out, <clears throat> turned out he was a genius at scouting and irregular cavalry tactics. Jeb Stewart became his mentor, and sent him to Northern Virginia to organize a regiment of partisan rangers. This was something that existed under Confederate law. These guys weren't paid on the Confederate Army scale. Instead, uh, the, their compensation was a share of uh, whatever plunder they took. Basically, they were privateers on dry land. Now, Mosby turned out to be a genius at guerrilla warfare. His rangers well, let's put it this way. They didn't even own tents. They never camped the entire the entire war. They would go on a raid, after which they vanished. They lived with families in northern Virginia and just lived as part of the family. The, essentially, the partisan rangers only existed when they were raiding. This was why Mosby became known to the Union forces as the Grey Ghost. <clears throat> there, there was simply no catching him. Also... Normally, it is impossible for cavalry, or was impossible for cavalry, to mount a surprise attack because it was too noisy, all the jingling and jangling and general noise with a cavalry unit moving. Mosby did away with sabers. He did away with canteens. He did away with everything that made any noise. They, uh, uh, these guys were silent, and they would come out of nowhere, usually at night. It is recorded that one problem with the northern troops in northern Virginia was sleep deprivation. Mosby became almost a supernatural boogeyman for them. On several occasions, he kidnapped Union generals right out of their headquarters. And when he announced that he was going to sneak into Washington and kidnap Lincoln, the Union high command wasn't laughing. For the rest of the war, 10,000 troops were tied down, protecting Washington against Mosby, who never had more than 400 men under his command at any given time. You say somewhere in the book that this is the last moment of that war is. Um, that's a great quote. The, the, the one from Churchill? Yeah. Much later, in the 20th century, Winston Churchill said, War, which used to be cruel and magnificent, has now become cruel and squalid. So Jason and his team go back disguised as Confederates. Their sympathies are not with the Confederacy, obviously. They're anti-slavery. How do you reconcile this kind of moral paradox when you're a time traveler? How does Jason think about this? Uh, this, this is something Jason always has to uh, worry about with the civilian members of his teams. They're, they go back, you know, you'll have a black member who sees slaves being lashed, something like this, and they can't blow their cover, as it were. Now, as regards this particular situation in Ghost's time, Jason's people and his team have to go to Richmond to foil this particular transhumanist plot. 
that's where it is. Also, they have to go there to uh, make contact with Mary Bowser, who was a former slave of Elizabeth Van Loo. Elizabeth Van Loo, of course, had freed all her slaves. But Mary Bowser was a uh, was a very brilliant woman. She was educated, and she had a photographic memory. Elizabeth Van Loo was able to get her planted in Jefferson Davis's household in the Confederate White House. And uh, because she was black, everybody assumed she was illiterate. And um, she acted rather simple-minded, so they'd just leave top-secret documents lying around on the table, and she'd walk past the table when she was uh, bringing the coffee and just take a look at them, and bing, uh, they were they could be transmitted to Elizabeth Van Lu, who, uh, who had various ways of getting them out of Richmond to the Union High Command. But the point is here that uh, Jason and his team have to operate in Richmond, so obviously they have to dress up like Confederates. And uh, that really is the answer to your question. I should mention one thing, though. Without blowing the plot, uh, the youngest and most inexperienced member of Jason's team for several months is cut off on his own. He has to survive on his own. He's uh, on his own devices. But he, he has a support system because he's already made contact with Mosby's rangers. So for several months, he rides with Mosby. And... He develops a genuine liking and admiration for these men, so his own feelings become very ambivalent. And this can lead to trouble because uh, uh, the contact he is working with in order to get his own job done is black and the leader of uh, an underground anti-slavery organization. So there, there are tense moments in here. You do confront that uh, that moral paradox in the book, and, and you have characters that have to deal with it, which is a, another great part of the of all these um, Jason Thano time travel books. Jason is also not done with the Caribbean um, <laughs> of the 1600s. He was in Pirates of the Time Stream. That he was hanging out with Henry Morgan and his bunch. There's a the, something to do with the uh, Port Royal earthquake of 1692, which is just a massive thing that I didn't really know about historically until I read about it in, in here. You do such great, uh, you bring such uh, great moments uh, into these books that are actually real moments. What can you tell us about the Port Royal earthquake of 1692? Yeah, Port Royal is uh, widely known as the Sodom of the New World. Basically, it was the capital city of piracy. Now, the Port Royal earthquake <clears throat> was one of the worst earthquakes in the history of the Western Hemisphere. Let me put it this way. The, uh, I don't know if you've heard of the, Mer the Mercalli intensity scale that is applied to earthquakes, the, which measures their shaking severity. Now, uh, this divides earthquakes into various values. Values 1 through 7, it's steadily worse. Values 8 through 10 are devastating. Value 11 is characterized as apocalyptic. The Port Royal earthquake, in some areas, reached value 12. Now, Port Royal itself was totally destroyed, or almost totally destroyed. You see, the, the earthquake, parts of it took place under sea. So naturally, it created a tsunami. This is one of the things that creates tsunamis. And at Port Royal, the English had been literally building on sand. It just it vanished like Atlantis. Today, you go to Jamaica, you, you fly into the Kingston Airport. It's on the Palisados, which is this uh, long peninsula or sand strip that encloses Kingston Harbor. And after you get off the plane, you go in one direction to get to Kingston, but if you go in the other direction, you come to the end of the Palisados, which was where Port Royal was located, and you, you can look down into the clear water and actually see the buildings and the old streets down there where it sank. And now, several thousand people were killed in the course of this happening, and uh, thousands more died in the following weeks, because you have to remember, in 1692, the societal safety net wasn't what it is today. I mean, imagine the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, if there had been no outside help whatsoever for the city of New Orleans, and the, the Port Royal earthquake was a whole lot worse than Hurricane Katrina. Now, of course, needless to say, all of this gave clergymen like Cotton Mather in Boston, lots of material for sermons on the wages of sin. Yeah, it was it was wiping out pirates. Port Royal 
had been this den of iniquity where the pirates uh, came to spend all their ill-gotten gains on rum and horse. Plus all the women and children that live there as well. Maybe Cotton Mather should have thought about that as well. Oh, well, 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 you know, well, you know when Jehovah smites you, uh, it's kind of rough on the bystanders. Back to the Civil War, which is which is um, the main part of the book. The fall of Richmond um, it was a tough time for anybody caught in it, and most B also had to find a way to stand down. Can you describe that period in Virginia um, right as the Civil War was ending? There were many, including a lot of Lee's officers, who wanted the survivors of the Confederate Army simply to melt away into the hills and carry on guerrilla warfare. Now, if this had happened, it would have been socially catastrophic for the post-war United States. Uh, I want to recommend to anyone who is interested a really brilliant book entitled April 1865 by Jay Winnick. He is very good about making it clear that it, the way the Civil War wound up could have been a whole lot worse. In fact, almost any other conclusion would have been worse. The, uh, to get an idea of the <clears throat> guerrilla warfare that might have existed if this had happened, you have to look at the state of Missouri. There were no great campaigns there, but opinion among the people there was divided between north and south. And that there was constant guerrilla warfare there, and the state practically reverted to barbarism. That is not an exaggeration. However, Lee was flatly against it. When he surrendered at Appomattox, he told his troops, go home. We tried. We couldn't win. We, we did a, all that human flesh could do. Now go home and be good United States citizens. And this got taken seriously because he was Lee. Now, Mosby was, at first, couldn't make up his mind. So shortly after the Appomattox surrender, he snuck a man into Richmond to get Lee's instructions, asked what he should do. Lee told him exactly what he told everybody. Go home. So Mosby called the partisan rangers together and simply disbanded them. They never surrendered. The next Jason Thano novel, which is currently in manuscript, it's oh, entitled yeah. Soldiers Out of Time. And I won't say anything about it, except that in this one, uh, Jason encounters in where <clears throat> he goes back to late 19th century British India and encounters a trio of disreputable British sergeants and a certain Indian water boy. He also encounters a cocky young war correspondent named Winston Churchill. Oh man, I can't wait for this. I don't have to wait, actually. I've got it sitting on my desk to read. <laughs> so. That's, uh, yes, you do. Well, the book is Ghosts of Time, book four in the Jason Thano time travel series. It's um, it's a wonderful excursion, uh, and the story, the transhumanist um, uh, conspiracy uh, subplot is very exciting and full of action as well. Um, it's now available at booksellers everywhere. Steve, thank you very much for speaking with us on the podcast. Thank you. And now here is part 15 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. It's read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Here's what has gone before. It's the 1930s in America, but it's an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with magical talents, and each generation more are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their power for good, but some do not. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy. That's the type of active that controls the force of gravity, and Jake is good at it. Jake has recently been rescued and stitched back together after a brutal fight by a mysterious group known as the Knights of the Grim Noir, led by an active, 
General Blackjack Pershing. Jake isn't at all sure he wants to be in their debt, but he has little choice at the moment. Now the Grimnor want to recruit Jake to be part of the organization. They claim they are the good guys in a fight against evil, but Jake has yet to be convinced he is not being drawn into a turf war between rival factions that might very well leave him dead as a doornail. Here is part 15 of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Chapter 7 Magic leads to terror. City firemen were unable to contain the fire that ripped through Amar Pacifica Estate on Sunday evening until there were only charred remains of the home belonging to famous big-game hunter L.S. Talon. A terrible discovery was made once the deadly flames were extinguished. So far, seven human bodies have been recovered from the scene. Local residents say that there was a great commotion and much gunfire before the conflagration spread. Rumor is that Mr. Talon was a supporter of magic and was himself an active. He has been missing since Sunday and is believed to be amongst the dead. Article, San Francisco Examiner, 1929. San Francisco, California. The address on Grandpa's note was on the far west side of the city. The neighborhood was called Richmond, and a lot of things must have changed from when Grandpa had drawn his little map. The area was filled with new houses, stores, and churches. Every now and then they would pass an area that was nothing but sand dunes, and then quickly enough there would be more homes. Some of the larger places had been started, but then abandoned when the developer's money had run out along with everyone else's. Lots of Jews and Irishmen in this part of town, the driver told Faye helpfully. The Russians built a great big church up over that way. Faye just kept watching out the window. As Grandpa had always said, her brain would just get to spinning sometimes, and the real world would fade away. She lost track of time as the town turned into suburbs, and then into an area of gentle green hills as they went south. She snapped back to reality as the cab stopped. We're here. This is the address you gave me. This? This is it? She asked, staring out the window. Are you sure? Yeah, said the driver. Not what you're expecting, I guess. There had been a house here once. That much was obvious. A really large one from the remains of the foundation that was poking out of the ground. Weeds had grown up over the crumbling brick, and what had once been a big chimney stood like a monolith. Looks like it burned down a long time ago, the cabbie said. You want me to take you back? There was a strange smell in the air when Faye stepped out of the cab. It was kind of fishy, but not too offensive. It took her a moment to realize that she was actually smelling the ocean for the first time. This couldn't be it. This had been her only clue from Grandpa. She started to wander toward the ruins. Lady! There had once been a fence of iron around the property, but whatever had engulfed the house had been so hot that the metal had softened and bent, and now the fence just looked lopsided. She ran her fingers across the bars, and they came away orange with rust. Hey! Lady! Pay me! The cabbie growled. Oh, sorry, Faye mumbled as she returned to the cab and carefully counted the money out exactly. The cabbie looked at it in disgust before driving off, and it was only a moment later that she remembered Gilbert warning her that people in the city also expected tips. The gate was lying in the weeds. The grass was hip-deep on what had once been a lawn. Faye thought that she could just barely smell the ash as she gingerly put her weight onto the charred boards of what had been the porch, and it reminded her of another, more recent fire. She noticed that somebody had etched strange symbols into the crumbling floor, and she stepped over them carefully. There was nothing else there. Somehow she knew that something bad had happened here, something worse than the fire. Lives had been lost in this place. Death was in the air. I'm sorry, Grandpa. I didn't expect this, she said as she slowly turned around. I thought maybe somebody around here would help me. 
She had been so certain that the address would hold the answers that she had not thought about what she would do next if there were no answers to be found. She was on the outskirts of a strange city, had no friends, and no idea what to do. She picked out a pile of bricks and sat down. Why am I here? Faye wasn't sure. Grandpa hadn't even really given her any last words. He'd just choked out half a sentence before dying, given her some weird metal thing which she'd managed to already lose half of, and now she was just alone. She wanted to cry, but she felt like she'd already cried all her tears, and now she was just all dry and hollow inside. A fat brown squirrel crawled up onto a nearby board. It cocked its head at her curiously, as if wondering what this strange human girl was doing sitting on some ashy bricks in the middle of its forest. Hello, said the squirrel. Oh, great, now I've gone crazy. Hi, Faye responded. The squirrel just kept looking at her, twitching nervously like squirrels do, and for a moment Faye thought that maybe it had just sounded like the little animal had spoken. Grandpa had always said that she got her brain spinning too fast sometimes and that if she spun it too hard it might break. The squirrel examined her for what seemed like an abnormally long time, and Faye started to doubt that she'd heard anything at all and felt stupid for talking to it. Nice ring, the squirrel said. Its voice didn't seem to match, like the sound wasn't coming from the animal, but through it. It had a deep, scratchy male voice. It set the ward spells off. Where'd you get it? My grandpa gave it to me, she answered, holding up her hand to show off the black and gold band. She could have sworn the squirrel nodded thoughtfully. He gave me a list with some names on it. I'm looking for somebody named Pershing. Could you help me, little squirrel? We've got a live one at the old place, the squirrel said, like it was talking back over its shoulder. Faye looked into the grass for other squirrels, but didn't see anything else hiding in the grass. Are you okay, Mr. Squirrel? You ain't from around these parts, are you, kid? asked the squirrel. Is it that obvious? Well, yeah, actually. The squirrel twitched and swiveled its head back toward the road as it sensed something. A large black automobile was coasting to a stop on the road. Its whiskers twitched violently as the doors opened. Shit! If it ain't some Imperium motherfuckers! exclaimed the squirrel, then it swiveled back to her. Damn it! Hide, girl! Hide! Go! Then it leapt off the board onto the grass. Faye watched the profane little animal disappear, then switched back to the car. Three men had gotten out and were heading straight for the fallen gates. They reached into their coats and came out with guns. She scrambled behind the pile of bricks and ducked down low. It was just like what had happened to Grandpa, and she realized that she was shaking uncontrollably. She could hear the crunching of the grass as the men moved. They were obviously city folk, not hunters, loud and clumsy. She risked a peek around the side of the bricks, and the closest was going to be on the porch in seconds. And there, right in the soft ashen wood, clear as day, were her footprints leading right to where she was hiding. Psst, over here. The squirrel's head poked up out of the weeds. Stay low. It was either follow the squirrel or travel before they found her, but she didn't know where to travel to. And if she appeared in front of one of the other men, they'd shoot her dead just like they had done to Grandpa. Faye crouched down, bunched up her dress so she could crawl and hustled after the squirrel. The animal was gone by the time she got there, but there seemed to be an indentation in the grass. When she pressed on it, her hand went right through into an empty space. There was a footfall a few feet away. With no time to think, Faye shoved her head through the grass and found herself staring down an ivy-coated chute. There was only a foot of light before everything was masked in shadow. She kept going, scooting down a gentle slope. Spiderwebs hit her in the face and insects skittered across her body. A second later, her hands landed in soft dust and she pulled herself into a tight black space. A few spikes of sunlight pierced the darkness from holes in the floorboards above. Every time one of the men took a step, ash cascaded through the light. Something furry and warm pushed past her lips and she almost screamed. Easy, the squirrel said softly. Where are we? Faye whispered. 
coal cellar. Hurry up, Francis. Imperium asshole's right on top of us. I'm not Francis. Who's Francis? Shut up, kid. I ain't talking to you, the squirrel hissed. Move your ass, boy. There was a thud directly overhead, and one of the men shouted something. They'd found Faye's tracks. Shit, they're gonna find us. Never a grizzly bear or a moose or a doberman around when I need one. Hey, girl, you got any powers? Yeah, Faye whispered. I'm a traveler. The squirrel sighed. What? Son of a bitch. I was hoping you had super strength or shot lightning bolts out of your eyes or something because these Imperium goons are going to find us any second. My name's Faye. Did I ask for a life story? We're about to get killed here. The squirrel let out a long sigh. Oh, hell. My name's Lance. You just scoot for the woods. I'll hold them off. She wasn't sure what exactly the squirrel, Lance, was going to do to fight off three men with guns. So she reached into her pocket and pulled out her little revolver. She cocked the hammer as slowly and quietly as possible. The squirrel rubbed up against her face again. Are you daft? The only thing you're going to do with that little thing is piss them off. What is that, a thirty-two? Jesus, you ain't hunting squirrels. Going to use that to put us out of our misery? There was a sudden crash. A pile of ash broke loose from the ceiling, obscuring the tiny shafts of light. Then another crash, and a much larger shaft of light appeared as one of the men smashed a hole in the floor with his boot. Go! Lance shouted. The furry shape left her face, bounded up into the light, and launched itself into the air. One of the men screamed, It's crawling on my pants! Kill it! Kill it! Quit being a punk and step on it, Al. We've got business. There was a commotion shouting, and then one of the men started to laugh at his companion's problem. They didn't know they were dealing with a magic squirrel. Faye thought about the area near the front gate, concentrated, feeling her magic. She hadn't traveled since getting the bug stuck in her foot, and for the first time in her life, she was scared to use her power and hesitated. I can do this. Her thoughts went ahead of her. The air was clear of objects. The grass was tall, waving, not a concern for a normal, but for her, every piece represented potential death, a single blade of grass potentially as deadly as a steel knife. No leaves in the air, no big pieces of sand or grit, no bugs, only particulate so small that her passage would brush it aside. Nothing was about to enter that space. She saw everything, and it all happened within a tenth of a second and she was gone. Faye appeared an inch over the tall grass, still in the same prone position she'd been in the cellar, and dropped like a stone. Her landing was cushioned by the weeds, and she popped right back up. The three men were standing in a circle over something. One of them was pointing his pistol at the floor, and she knew that the magic squirrel was just as dead as Grandpa had been. Lance! The men looked up simultaneously, guns rising toward her, and Faye prepared to travel again, but their eyes collectively jerked upward as something passed through the air over her head with a rustle of cloth in the wind. A petite shape landed in a crouch between the men, knocking one of them sprawling. It was a woman in a red dress. She rose quickly, slammed her palm into another's chest with a terrible crack, throwing him back and completely through the brick chimney, collapsing the entire structure in a cloud of red dust. She spun back toward the last man just as his gun stabbed out toward her and Faye screamed. There was a gunshot. The man's head snapped back. The pistol dropped from lifeless fingers before he collapsed into the ash. Good shot, Francis, the woman shouted. Then she turned back to the first one she'd knocked down. She kicked a giant beam casually out of the way, bent down and grabbed a handful of hair dragging the struggling man from the ashes. There was the sound of an action being worked, and Faye turned to see a man standing back at the gate with a bolt-action rifle. Faye almost traveled, but he didn't point the rifle at her. Instead, he gave her an easy smile. It's going to be all right. We're here to help you. The man was young, probably not much older than her. Are you Lance the Magic Squirrel's friend? Huh? At first he seemed bewildered by that. Then he started to laugh like she'd said something hilarious. Faye was confused by his reaction. 
Come on, I think they squished him, she cried, then traveled back to the house. Her shoes hit the ashen floor, just as the lady in the red dress was smacking the last man senseless. The scary woman glanced up, surprised. She was holding the much larger man effortlessly by the neck, one arm cocked back to hit him again, her delicate knuckles covered with his blood. Faye paid her no mind. These new people seemed to be on Lance's side, and he had saved her life. Oh, no, Faye cried, falling to her knees next to the hole in the floor. The squirrel was inside. It moved weakly. You're alive, she picked up the tiny body and hugged it close. The magic squirrel blinked stupidly. It must have gotten hit in the head. The young man joined her a moment later, putting one hand gently on her shoulder. Come on, we've got to get out of here. There might be more coming. I wish they would, said the woman. She appeared with a limp form thrown over one shoulder. The man was much bigger than she was, but she didn't seem to notice the weight. I hit that other guy through the chimney a little hard, but this one's alive. I can remedy that real quick if you want. Now the general will want to question him, said a gruff male voice. Francis, bring the car up and stick him in the back. Looks like some tough guys working for hire. They probably won't know anything about the Imperium, but it's worth a shot. He sounded strangely familiar, and Faye looked up. A burly, dark-bearded man was standing at the base of the porch with his thick arms folded. He was wearing rough work clothes and a wide-brimmed hat. He was shorter than Faye, but nearly two men wide in the chest. Faye stood, still cradling the squirrel. L Lance? The man's eyes twinkled as he grinned. That's me. Hell, kid, what are you doing with that squirrel? I'm too proud and not near hungry enough to eat that flea-bitten thing for dinner. Faye looked down at the squirrel just as it regained its senses and bit the hell out of her thumb. Ow! She flung her hands wide, and the little animal scurried into the grass. Lance turned and started to walk away with a pronounced limp, realizing a moment later that she wasn't following. Are you coming or what? Somewhere in Colorado When Jake Sullivan woke up again, it was later in the day, and there were brown mountains outside blocking the sunlight, but a pair of electric lamps lit the train compartment fairly well. They were still moving, and the air felt thinner when he inhaled. Someone was sitting in the chair next to the bed reading a newspaper. The banner proclaimed that it was the Denver something or other, and the headline was about some anarchists causing trouble, but Sullivan didn't feel like trying to move his head far enough to read it. He must have groaned because the paper dipped down, revealing a thick pair of glasses and a friendly smile. Evening, Jake. How are you feeling? Not dead, so could be worse. The man chuckled as he folded the newspaper. Understandable. We haven't had the pleasure of being formally introduced, though we've met twice now. I'm Daniel Garrett. I've been sent by my employer to make you an offer. Not to be rude, Dan, but which way's the toilet? That caught him off guard, and he pointed to the rear of the compartment. Well... You have been asleep for a really long time, but Ira said you shouldn't try to move. Sullivan sat up abruptly, feeling the stitches pull and ache. Never mind, I suppose. Sullivan swung his legs off the bed, heaved himself up, and stumbled for the back. Walking would have been difficult under normal circumstances, but the rocking of the train made it worse. Never been in a train car that had a private toilet. Now that's high class. Sullivan stated on his return. This time there was a whole pitcher of water at the bedside instead of just a cup. He picked it up and started drinking. Yes, I bribed our way onto the very best, Garrett said as Sullivan pounded down the entire pitcher. It was the first thing out of Chicago. Well, this are a freight car, and the doctor said he needed something decent to work on you so I made sure I passed around enough dough to keep the crew from talking about the big busted-up fella in the wheelchair. Sullivan slammed the pitcher down. That's better. He leaned against the rocking wall, feeling every ache, stitch, and bruise, and he still had a cold. I'm starved. Any chance I could get you to spring for a couple of steaks? Of course, Garrett replied. Ah, uh, I thought you wanted to know what was going on first. Sullivan grimaced as his stomach growled. 
Burning that much power always made him hungry, and that wasn't counting the blood loss. You talk, I eat. That was part 15 of the complete audiobook serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa, read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to Kim Montserrat, Edith Hoffman, and Ken Gariga in the Val de Horta of Catalonia, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a salute of 27,000 infilled muskets and one very loud, ill-planned underground explosion engineered by... Oh no, is that Joe Burnside? Is he back? Great, here we go again. Plus the doffed hats and raised swords of Confederate gallants and rough Union cavalrymen everywhere. To Steve White, author of new Jason Thano time travel novel, Ghosts of Time. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. Bye.